Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I'm joined by Charles Duig, best-selling author of The Power of Habit, a book that sold over 5 million copies globally. Today, we'll talk about Charles's new book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Thank you for having me on. Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Santa Cruz, California, um, where it's a little bit earlier than it is, I think, for you. Are, are you in London? I'm in London, well, near London, and it is 6 p.m. It is pitch black dark here at the moment <laughs> after maybe like five. So that's why I've got so many lights um, lighting me up so I can so we can see each other. I love it. <laughs> well, firstly, I have to say that this book, Super Communicators, has been on my bedside table for a week or so. And now that I finished reading it, I'm going to strategically place it on the other side of the bed, on my husband's <laughs> side, because it's definitely one of those books that once you read it, you want others to read it, especially those that you love and care about, people that you interact with on a daily basis, that you have communication with, if you care about, you know, trying to make those communications the best that they can be. So that's what I'm going to be doing with the book tonight. Well, I hope that I hope that he picks it up and reads it. You'll have to let me know how it goes if uh, if yeah. the lessons take hold. Yeah, I'm sure that he will. So first up, super communicators. For the listeners of the podcast, could you please tell us, I guess, what are the characteristics that would define a super communicator and how can we spot them as they walk among us? Absolutely. Actually, we all know a super communicator, right? Let me, let me ask you a question. If you were having a bad day and you wanted to just call someone who you knew was going to make you feel better, like as soon as you talked to them, the day was going to get better. Does that person pop into your mind immediately? Immediately. Who is it? My sister. Your sister. Okay. So she is for, a super communicator. I'm sure she is. And particularly for you, she's a super communicator. My guess yeah. is you're a super communicator back to her. But there are some people who can do this with anyone, right? They can kind of connect with anyone they come across. These people are consistent super communicators. And what we know is that we know that they're not necessarily more extroverted. They're not charismatic. They weren't born with this capacity. Rather, communication is just a set of tools and skills that once we learn how to use them, we become super communicators because we understand what's going on in a conversation rather than just kind of bumbling into it and hoping for the best. Well, it's interesting that you said that, that they are not always extroverted or confident because, and that some, this is something people can learn because I think that is a misconception when it comes to communication in general is that people assume, and I'm, I'm an extrovert and I'm confident and I do public speaking and I do a podcast. So therefore, I think people sometimes attribute those kind of things to people like myself. But as you said, you know, there's definitely people who I can think of in my life who I think are incredible communicators for different reasons. And they're not all extroverts and they're not all no. public speakers. You know, it's not necessarily their profession, but they, I mean, I, yeah, I'll come on to the reasons why. But before I do so, after writing this book, in your opinion, what are 
some of the most common pitfalls and mistakes that people make when it comes to communicating or thinking that they are good communicators when maybe they're not? And how can we avoid those? Yeah, it's a great question. And and the answer is that oftentimes we don't understand what kind of conversation we're having. And, and it, this is actually something that happened to me, right? But what, the reason I started writing this book is that I would come home from work and and I would t- start telling my wife all about my day. You know, my my boss is a jerk and my coworkers don't appreciate me. And and she would say very rationally, like, why don't you take them out for lunch? Get to know them a little bit better. But instead of being able to hear her advice, I would get even more upset. And then and then she would get upset because I was I was attacking her for giving me advice. And so I went to all these experts and I asked them, what's going on here? And they said, well, here's what we've learned in the last decade. Most people think of a discussion as being about one thing. It's about your day or it's about the plans we're making for next week. But every discussion is made up of different kinds of conversations. And in general, they fall into one of three buckets. There's these practical conversations when we're talking about making plans or solving problems. There's emotional conversations where I tell you what I'm feeling and I don't want you to solve my feelings. I want you to listen and empathize. And then there's social conversations, which is about how do we relate to each other and to society? How do our social identities influence how we speak and hear? And they said, when you came home from work, you were having an emotional conversation and your wife was having a practical conversation. And those are both legitimate conversations. But if you're not having the same kind of conversation at the same moment, then you won't really hear each other. You won't really connect because you're using different parts of your brains. Yes. And I think so often we're all guilty of doing that, aren't we? Exactly what you described, kind of asking someone for advice, maybe asking for their opinion, or maybe maybe that's not what we're doing. Maybe we're just sharing and we want to vent and let off steam. And as you said, we don't necessarily always get the response that we want. And then there's tension and this back and forth. And you kind of like, oh, you don't understand me. You're not listening to me versus the person who the super communicator, maybe for you, who when you go to them with your complaint, with your concern, with your asking for advice, typically I feel like those people ask a lot of questions, yeah, you know, they ask, they ask you more questions, questions, you know? So like, why, oh, you know, and firstly as well, they they kind of, I think they empathize in a different way. And this is something that I've, I think, practiced and learned. So when you said this is a skill you can learn for any listeners out there, trust me, I <laughs> have changed, I think my communication style. And it's because I think what I used to think was helpful was to empathize with somebody by saying to them, oh, I know how you feel because when I had that experience, X, Y, and Z, or when someone did that to me, this is how I responded. But then what you do is you take the conversation away from the person, right? And you put the attention on yourself and suddenly you're talking about you. And I think I learned that actually often when people are telling you something, even if it comes from a kind place of empathy saying, oh my gosh, me too. Actually, it's not always what people need to hear that like, oh, you've been there, you've done it. What they need to hear sometimes is like, just more questions so that they can tell you how they feel and how yeah and if they ask you i suppose for you know really strategic advice then it's slightly different maybe yeah no you're exactly right asking questions is key and we know that consistent super communicators they ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person and you're exactly right that that what the researchers have discovered is that what's known as the matching principle, that we have to have the same kind of conversation at the same moment. And that oftentimes the best way to figure out what kind of conversation we're having is simply to ask the other person. Like when I come home from work now and I start complaining, my wife says, look, do you want me to help you solve this problem or do you just need to vent and get it off your chest? And it feels so good when she asks me that, right? Because it sometimes I don't know myself until somebody asks. And similarly, when you have a friend who talks about something hard in their life, you know, a, a relative who just passed away, 
you're exactly right. Stealing the spotlight by saying, oh, I know what that's like. My, my pet died seven years ago. That doesn't feel good. But a way that you can show empathy is by asking a question and saying something mm-hmm. like, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like, how are you doing? Or tell me about your aunt. What was she like? Those questions show that we're listening. They show that we have compassion for the person. We don't have to share something from our own life. We can often just match the conversation that's happening by saying, I'm here to talk about your emotions because this seems like an emotionally challenging or or great time. Hmm. Yeah, and I think the questions part actually maybe comes more naturally to me. I think I've always been quite a curious person and I always asked a lot of questions. If anything, sometimes I used to think, I ask too many questions. It's almost like people feel like it's an interrogation, you know, like questions, questions, questions. But that part came more naturally to me. But one part that you talk about in the book, which is it's where there's, um, I guess, like a guide to using the information or using the ideas, sorry. And the key takeaway for me from that was actually preparing for the conversation. So I think in a more formal setting, maybe I'd considered that before. So for example, let's say presenting or doing a meeting with a colleague, but I don't think I necessarily, well, I know that I didn't use that, that tool of, okay, I'm going to prepare for this conversation in interpersonal relationships, like conversations with my husband or my son or my friends. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like how and why is it important to prepare for conversations? So there's a study that I love about this. And and the takeaway from the study is even the smallest bit of preparation helps, helps that conversation go better. These researchers went into an investment bank, and this was a place where people would scream at each other like all day long. There were fights in almost every meeting. And what they said is, okay, for the next week, what we'd like you to do is before each meeting, just take seven to 10 seconds and write down on a piece of paper or an index card, one sentence. And in that sentence, just say what you hope to accomplish in this meeting and the mood you hope to establish. Mm-hmm. So people would do this. They would jot it down. It takes seven seconds. They'd stick it in their pocket. And then as, as far as you could tell, they would forget about them, right? Because nobody would read from their piece of paper. Nobody would say like, here's my goal for this meeting. But the incidence of conflict went down by 80% that week. And the reason why is because people knew what they wanted to say and they knew what kind of mood they wanted to establish. And that's really powerful. When we call up a friend, if we just take three seconds to think about, here's the thing that I want to tell this person that's really important to me. And, and, and I hope that we like laugh about it. I hope that we feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Then you'll feel much more confident in that conversation and the conversation will go better. But you're right. We do that when we're going to a meeting. We don't usually do it when we're calling up our friends or our parents, but it's really helpful. Yeah. I think especially if it's a conversation that you may be anticipating is going to be difficult or anticipating that, you know, for example, in relationships, whether it's siblings or spouses or parents, we can have these kind of conversations that repeat, you know, we've had it before. So we know, okay, maybe it's going to have the same conversation again around a specific thing that causes tension. So I think when I read that, I thought actually, yeah, if you prepare for that and you know, okay, if I say this, that's not going to go down well. Or if yeah. they ask, you know that, and you can kind of think and maybe get ahead of that and kind of explain to them that this is the outcome that I really want. And this is, you know, like you said about kind of the mood, this is the outcome. That's how I kind of interpreted that was, this is the outcome of that I want from this conversation. So let's kind of both come at it as like a problem solving thing. And as opposed to combative, I say this, exactly. you can say that, you know. And, you're exactly, and, and sometimes the way that we talk about that practical conversation I mentioned is we call it the what's this really about conversation, right? Because what you're really trying to figure out is like, what do both of us want from this discussion? And it might be just that we're friends and we want to like relax with each other and enjoy each other's company. But it also might be that what we both really want 
is that I want, we want to come to an agreement on something that's hard, or I want to give you a piece of feedback that, that I think is going to be hard for you to hear. And you want to let me know that you've heard it and that you're going to try and change. And so, or that you think you don't need to change. And so I think that what's important is when we do have this, take this brief moment just to think about what we're going to say, then we're much better prepared. And study after study has shown this. There was one study at Harvard Business School where students were about to have conversations with strangers, which is very anxiety producing. Mm. And they told them beforehand, jot down three topics you want to discuss, right? Again, it took like five to seven seconds. They People wrote down things like last night's TV show and this weekend's game. And then they put the cards in their pockets and they went and they had their conversations. Almost none of those topics ever came up. But the fact that everyone had that card in their pocket they said that they were more confident going into the conversation, that the conversation went better than they expected, that it was a good, meaningful conversation because they had something to fall back on. And sometimes that's all we need. Yeah. I want to loop back to this uh, three types of conversations because so the first one, the practical, the decision making, what's this really about conversation? The second one being the emotional, how we feel conversation, you know, kind of yeah, shaped by our emotion. And then the third one, the who we are conversation. So our social context surrounding this conversation. So those are the three conversations, but I'm sure we don't have conversations in isolation. And so if there's overlap or maybe as you described, one person's typically comes from like a practical, I know I come from a very practical problem solving mindset often. And then when someone else is much more maybe aware of their emotion and kind of trying to, yeah, kind of get me to be more of aware they are, I guess, how do you navigate that when there's two things or maybe even three overlapping? Yeah. So it's a really good question because all three of those conversations will normally happen in each discussion right? We'll, we'll talk about something that's a little bit emotional, and then we'll talk about the practical aspects of it. And then we'll talk about the social aspects. How is this going to affect my friends or my coworkers? And then we might go back to emotional. The key is that we need to make those shifts together. So we have to get aligned at the beginning of a conversation so that we're having the same kind of conversation. And what that means is that we just have to listen for what kind of conversation is happening. We can ask questions. And, and there's a type of question known as a deep question that's particularly powerful. But when we ask those questions, listen to what the person is saying and ask yourself, does it seem like they're in an emotional frame of mind or are they in a practical frame of mind? Or, or is this more about other people and how we relate to each other? That's a social frame of mind. And then once we match each other, once we align, I can invite you to, to shift with me. You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I'm really glad I, I understand how you feel. Is it okay if we talk about solutions now, right? That's a way to sort of say, like, let's move from an emotional conversation to a practical conversation. And part of it is just making this deliberate and just noticing. This is what super communicators do. They pay like half an inch more attention to what's going on in the conversation. And that's what makes them exceptional. And I think maybe highlighting and being confident enough to say out loud, like, for example, when you said about your wife asking you at the end of the day, do you want me to help you find a solution to this problem or do you just want me to listen? So yeah. I think being confident enough to ask someone who maybe not you don't have that relationship with, again, I'm thinking of a professional setting where I can think of examples where maybe in the past, just to give like tangible examples, the, the third kind of conversation, so the social context piece, I feel like I've definitely worked in environments before where if I've asked a question regarding, okay, the framing of, okay, everybody here, maybe there's, 90% of the decision makers are men 
and Mm -hmm. we need to have a more female you know voice and representation or you know being the only woman of color in a lot of discussions often that when you ask a question of that maybe people it can shift very quickly into an emotional conversation and the other person can feel you can see that shift as you said i notice i can see i'm very aware of that kind of emotional shift of somebody might feel as though well Maybe they might shift to being quite defensive or they might feel uncomfortable just discussing the topic at all. Or, or they anxious might that they're ang- going to say the wrong thing, right? Yeah, and, and, exactly. Yeah. No, it happens all the time. And and I think what's really important in those examples, and I think those are great examples, is that when we go into a conversation, a social conversation, and we talk about ourselves as only having one identity, that's where the anxiety comes from, right? If we go into a conversation and I say, Look, I'm white and you're black, so this this is pro- like let's talk about policing. It's almost as if I'm pushing our both of us into these stereotypes, right? I'm pushing the, uh, both of us into these corners. But the truth of the matter is that all of us contain dozens of identities, right? You are a black woman who's a podcaster who works, you know, every day, and you're probably a sibling. You're a wife. You might be a mother. You, you're you're the daughter of of people. Like you have all these different identities and and all those different identities are really interesting and important. And when we invite them to the table, that's when we can have a conversation where that anxiety doesn't erupt, particularly in the social conversation. When I can say, look, you know, I'm wondering how you feel about immigration because I know, I know that as a professional, you probably have to think about this one way, but as a as a, a mom, you might think of it a different way. And as a as a black woman, you might think of it a different way. And I'm interested in in all those different ways that you see this. Now I haven't pushed you into a stereotype. I haven't pushed you into a corner. I've invited you to share who you really are. And that's really the goal of a conversation. That's what feels good. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I wish that I'd had this conversation with you a few weeks ago before, because I'm reflecting on an interaction. So I want to talk to you about how we can become better communicators as parents. So I I am a parent and I feel like when my son was very, very young, I feel like maybe, I don't know, I think everyone comes into their own at different stages of parenting. And I feel like actually now that I now have two stepchildren, but now that my son is almost becoming a teenager, the whole communication thing just shifts. It's a whole different thing. It's less, you know, like, I guess I'm the parent and you listen. It's kind of way more of a two-way, two-way conversation. And so uh, we recently went to the orthodontist. I'll try and keep this story short. We went to the orthodontist to find out if he needed to have braces, you know, like to kind of make his teeth straighter. So I wish we'd had this conversation before that day, because I think, as I said, I come at conversations from a very practical, analytical problem solving way. Whereas my son is much more of an emotive he leads with emotion. He can be overwhelmed by emotion. And I think sometimes his emotions override his cognitive function. So he's yeah. not hearing any of the thing around, you don't need to worry. It's not going to, you know, today's just a checkup. It's not going to be painful. If he's physically anxious, that emotion is kind of overriding. And so I wondered, I wondered if you could help any other parents who are thinking, okay, how can I better communicate with a young person, maybe a teenager, a young adolescent child? and actually notice which one of these conversations they're in and, and how I can, I can communicate better and help them better. Absolutely. And, and I have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, so I feel, I feel your pain. It's, it's, it's when they go from being these cute, adorable children to suddenly these like smelly teenagers, and they're still, you still love them so much, but it's different, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a couple of things that parents can do that we know from, from research has a huge impact. The first is, and this is true of any conversation where where there is a little bit of tension, and almost every conversation with a teenager there probably is, is that 
there is a suspicion in that teenager's head that you're not actually listening to them. You're just waiting for your turn to speak, right? The same way that when we're having a, a discussion about politics or in the book, there's a story of, of gun rights advocates in the U.S. and gun control activists coming together. And, and there's a lot of suspicion there, even if we don't acknowledge it, because we don't think the other person is listening. So the first thing that as a parent we can do is we prove that we're listening. And the easiest way to do that is this thing called looping for understanding, where we ask a question. Then we repeat back what we heard the person say in our own words, and then we ask them if we got it right. And the reason why this is so powerful is because it proves to the other person we're actually listening to them. And when you're a teenager, the fact that your parents prove that they've listened to you, that feels amazing. That's like that's like 70% of the battle. Hmm. Then the next thing is, as we're having that conversation, we have to figure out, now that I've proved to you that I've listened to you, how do I how do I understand what you're saying? Because the goal of a conversation is not to convince the other person you're right. It's not to convince them to change their mind, even if that's what we want. The goal of a conversation is simply to understand how they see the world and help them understand how you see the world. And if we do that, that's the way that we're going to have influence and real back and forth. If we go in with any other goal, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely keen to talk to you about this. I wrote in capital letters <laughs> looping because I've, I've, I've kind of heard this before in romantic conversations, you know, like marriage therapy counseling with the, the Gottman Institute. I think um, it's when we, maybe where I first heard of this idea of ask a question and then summarize what you heard and then ask if you got it right. Now, I think that this is such a useful tool, the way you described it with a, with a young person, because not only, again, one way proving to them you're listening to them, but actually I think if you do it in reverse, so you ask them to repeat what you've said, typically what I think is, and you can tell me if I'm right, Charles, you're the expert. <laughs> I feel like the first thing that they say, let's say you've said four different points. The first thing that they repeat back is usually the only thing that they focus on. Yeah. So for example, do you know what I mean? So for example, this is very silly, but if you had a shopping list of four things, the one thing that they remember is the thing they're focused on. And sometimes they forget everything else in the conversation and they're just like, and it kind of highlights to you, ah, okay, that's what they heard. They didn't that's actually exactly hear all the right. things. That's yeah. exactly right. And, and it tells you something about their pre, their what they're worried about, what they're focused on, what they're anxious about. And, and the reason why looping for understanding is so powerful is not only does it prove to the other person that we're listening, it's a way to force us to listen. Right. Sometimes we want to listen to someone and then we get in our own way. Like they say something and we start re refuting it in our head or thinking about what we're going to say next or worrying that they, they don't think we're smart. But if my assignment in a conversation is to listen so closely to you that I can repeat back what you're saying in my own words, then I'm going to pay attention the whole time. I'm not going to distract myself. Yeah. And that's, that's how we teach ourselves to listen. So asking your kids to do that is really, really powerful because it's helping them learn how to actually listen better. Yes, it's definitely something I'm going to try more often because I think the listening part as well is something that most people would say that they're good at. You know, if you ask a room, room full of people, are you good at listening? Who, put, who thinks they're good at listening? Everyone's hand's going to go up. But as you rightly said, I think most people are not good at listening, especially now. And I think we'll come on to this in a moment, but especially now in the modern world where there are so many distractions and our interactions and our communication, I think is getting quicker and shorter. So whether it's, you know, a, a quick message, whether it's an emoji, you know, there's all these ways that we've kind of shortened our, our ability to communicate. And therefore I think our attention and listening it's just hard. People, you can see it when you're talking to someone and you see their eyes go down and then they scroll through their phone or yeah. they just, you know, look at something because just to 
just to give someone your undivided attention nowadays, I think for most people for more than a few minutes is a real challenge. It's true. It's absolutely true. And and yet our brains have evolved to be really good at listening. That's the that's the interesting part about it is is it, it's not so much that we need to learn how to do this as remember what we already know. And some of that is just learning these these techniques like looping for understanding that makes it easier for us to listen. Would this uh, also help people who struggle with overthinking? So I know in, in the part of the book where you talked about preparation for the conversation, people who do that typically have less anxiety after the conversation and maybe that can stop that like rumination. But I know a lot of people who maybe it's because, yeah, they're not really listening or they're not paying attention or they're finding it hard to remember. Afterwards, we'll go, oh my gosh, what did I say? Oh, I shouldn't have said this. Oh, I should have asked that. What are they going to think? I didn't do my best. And this rumination and overthinking. But if you actually ask them, well, what did you say? They're like, well, I don't know. Or what did he, what did he say? Right. I can't remember. <laughs> and it's like this brain frog of people kind of being like, they're stressed about it, but they can't really recall what Absolutely. happened. What, what can they actually do? Because obviously you can't just sit there and kind of write down notes and someone's talking. So how can people practically get better at listening and then not have that overthinking worrying after. So it's a great question. And, and in, this, in the book, there's this story about the CIA officer from the Central Intelligence Agency who, who his first assignment is to go recruit people in Europe. And he's terrible at his job. He's like about to get fired because he can't recruit anyone. They all say things like, if you keep bothering me, I'm going to report you to the authorities and you'll get deported. And then eventually he meets this one woman who's on vacation. She works for the foreign ministry in the Middle East, her Middle Eastern nation. And and she says, no, I'm not going to work for you. Like She just runs away from the table when he asks her. And eventually he has another meal with her. And he finds that the only way he can get through is to be authentic. He figures at this point, like I, he gives up. I, I'm not going to recruit this woman. So instead, what he tries to do is he just says, like, look, I understand why you're disappointed in yourself after this vacation. You're going home. I'm disappointed in myself. Like, I thought I was going to be good at this job and I'm terrible at it. And it was at that moment that they were both authentic that she could hear what he was saying and she decided she agreed to become a spy and she became the best asset in the Middle East for the next 20 years. And I think the lesson there gets to what you're talking about, which is oftentimes we get in our own way because we are not focusing on being authentic. We're not focusing on seeing someone's vulnerability and, and, and showing something vulnerable of our own. And yet if we go into a conversation and we just say, look, I want to be honest and I, I want to listen to the other person. Then what we'll find is we end up listening really, really well because we're not trying to figure out how, what can I say to persuade someone or what can I say to make them like me or think that I'm smart. Instead, we're paying attention to them and we're just saying the honest thing that occurs to us. Mm. Charles, have you ever been honest and, and it not paid off? Or kind of, you know, like you said, then you're not thinking, oh, I need to come across as smart or I need to come across as whatever. Have you ever just said, for example, I don't know. You know, if someone asks you a question, let's say it's a job interview or a podcast yeah. interview and someone goes, honestly, I don't know. You know, have you ever Oh, I say that? it all the time. <laughs> yeah. and, and the truth is that like, it's so refreshing, isn't it? As the, on the other side, like, like in a job interview, if you ask someone a question, if they don't know the answer, you're going to know that they don't know the answer. And if they right. just say, I don't know, you're going to recognize, oh, this is a person who knows themselves really well. Yes. And if you don't want to just say, this is a top tip, because I have done this. If you don't want to just say the words, I don't know, maybe you feel like, yeah, embarrassed or like you're going to come across as stupid. You can, if you're talking about a specific topic, you could say, you know what, I'm at the edge of my understanding of this topic, so I can't add anything else. 
you know yeah. and i've done that before in like in in settings where it's like oh okay fair enough you right know? right That's it's it. wonderful isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah rehearse that one take take that one and rehearse it I'll mention another tip like that that I think is really helpful is um, because a lot of people have anxiety about ending conversations, particularly at like parties and things like that. Mm-hmm. So so one of the best ways to do that is something very similar, which is to say, you know, I, I need like you sort of say I, I need to end this conversation. Something like, oh, I want to let you go play host. I don't want to take up all of your time or I need to go freshen my drink. But before I do, I have one more question for you. Right. So, so what it does is it doesn't say to the other person, you're boring. I want to walk away. Right. Or I'm bored by this conversation. What it says is I recognize that I need, like, we need to talk to other people, but you're so interesting that I have one more question for you. And then it's the most graceful, graceful departure on earth. Gold, gold. (laughs) Charles, thank you for that one. Going in my pocket as someone who goes to lots of events, I would take that one. Okay. So I guess I wanted to ask you, aside, I suppose, from this book, I mean, was it, so the first book I referenced at the start, The Power of Habit, a book which is actually on my shelf I've had for many, many, many years. Yeah. Before I wrote my first book, it was one of the books that I kind of went back to and was like, okay, I need to read this book again. Oh, thank Um, you. But it was a very long time ago, Charles. It was a long time ago. 10 years ago. It was a decade ago. 10. Okay. So 10 years ago. And obviously I know you've done, you know, you're a busy guy. You've done incredible things. Why did you choose to share this book with us all now? You know, I made a few references to the modern world and some of the challenges maybe around communication, but I'd like to hear from you. Yeah. Why did you feel like this was the right time to share this book? I think there was two reasons. The first is that I would get these emails from people who had read The Power of Habit and they would say, you know, this advice was so helpful to me. But my real question is, how do I change other people's habits? Because no matter what I do, other people get in my way. And it made me realize that, you know, the power of habit, it's really about focusing on ourselves. But so much of what we do every single day involves other people, right? We belong to teams. We belong to a family. And so the ability to communicate, that's the thing that is the missing part of making people really be able to have their best lives. And then the second thing is, and, and I think you guys saw this, we saw this in the US and then the UK, it just feels like we're entering this period where we've been polarized from each other, right? Where where we you can't you, you're terrified of talking about politics, you're terrified of talking about race or gender. And yet I don't want to fight with my neighbor. And the fact that he he has a flag on his house for Donald Trump and I have a flag on my house for Joe Biden or Brexit or you know, leave or remain. Like that's that's such a small part of who we are. And I want to have a relationship with the person next to me. I want to be able to talk to my uncle who has crazy political views about anything. And so, and, and we used to learn how to have conversations in schools, right? If you think about it, what a finishing school for young women was, it was a place to learn to become a good conversationalist. Mm-hmm. And in schools in the US, we used to have home economics that would teach people how to connect with each other. And as we've become more technical, we've lost that education. And I felt like there were some really important lessons, particularly from the last decade. We're living through this golden age of understanding communication. There were these lessons I wanted to share with people. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. And it's interesting. I had two friends from LA who came to visit us maybe a couple of months ago here in the UK. And they were actually asking me, they were like, is it the same here in terms of this political divide? Like, do you know, you know, your neighbor, are they, are they Labour Party, are they Conservative Party? And she kind of was like, you know, it is obviously we do have, uh, you know, a polarizing um, 
political parties, but no, I don't feel like it's anywhere near the extent of the US where, you know, as she was describing to me, people would not speak to their own parents, siblings, you know, people's own family if they're in different political parties. And it feels like it is so divided that it almost, you said then, oh, these things shouldn't define us. But I feel like from her perspective, any, she was like, it does. She said, if you think this, and if you are over there, you can't even communicate with someone who's over on the other side because they're too far apart now. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's gotten bad in the US. And actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm really gratified to hear that it's not quite as bad in the UK. But I do know that there are some issues that the UK and all of Europe is dealing with right around mm-hmm. immigration, around, um, you know, I know that things were very pitched when Brexit was was being debated. And mm-hmm. Boris Johnson sort of inspired a lot of a lot of strong mm-hmm. emotions from people. And I think that one of the things that we've forgotten is that We've always had differences, right? If you have three people in a room, you're going to have nine opinions and they're not going to be the same opinions. Mm. But but part of being in a democracy, part of being human is learning how to connect with people despite those differences. Because it's when we when we do connect with each other that we can build something amazing together. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with everyone with each other on everything, but it does mean that we have to know how to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There certainly is polarization here. You certainly can. You, you're still at risk of getting canceled. Let's put it that way. But I think it's just far more. I feel like and this might just be anecdotal, but I feel like it lives far more online. Um, whereas people in the room, you get real humans together in the room. And that polarization seems less. Um, that's absolutely polarized. right. That's absolutely right. And that's really powerful. Yeah. So my final topic is, of course, the concept of the power hour. Now, I've been doing this podcast, Charles, for over five years. So there's a lot of guests, you know, in that time. And at the end of every show, I ask them about their power hour, which is typically the first hour of each day. Now, I've had Olympic athletes. I've had DJs. I've had all sorts of different people, reformed criminal once on this podcast who'd spent years in prison and two life sentences, um, now free man. But the interesting thing is to always hear from people why and what they choose to do with the first hour of their day. So Charles, could you tell us on a typical Absolutely. day? I love this question so much because I'm so curious what other people do. And then I want to hear how you spend your power hour. I, um, so I wake up every morning. I, I unfortunately wake up very early, despite my attempts to sleep in because I'm, I have kids now. And and for the first hour, what I actually do is I for a long time I aspired to like exercise and to meditate, but what I actually do is I spend the first hour dealing with email because I hate email. <laughs> like okay. I don't hate email. I'm bad at email. I'm bad at, it feels very trying to reply to emails. So what I do is I let all of my replies build up during the day. And then when I sit down at like six in the morning, I can just power through them. And it makes me feel like I have gotten this chore off my chest and the rest of the day belongs to me. 
So that's that's how I spend my power hour. How about you? Well, I'll tell you about mine in a second, but before I do, because I feel like you're the first person in quite a long time to say that, you know, essentially, I feel like your power hour is very productivity based, right? As you said, you're kind of clearing the decks and going through all those. So for the rest of the day, or for at least the next, you know, few hours, you don't feel that kind of, I guess, pull or urge to think, oh, I need to get back to people. You've kind of done that, cleared the decks. Yeah. 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 No, and have you done that for a long time? Yeah, yeah, I've done it for, I mean, for a while now. And the reason why is because the thing I prioritize is thinking as deeply as possible. And to think deeply, you need to avoid distractions. And and so part of that is like, you know, not having things in my office, not having my phone have notifications on it, not being on social media. But part of it also is the distractions that live within our heads, whether we want them to or not. And for me, one of those distractions is that person sent me this thing and I really need to reply to it, but I want to focus on this other thing. And so when I sit down in the morning and I say, look, I have an hour. If it's a really important email, then I'm going to get to it. I'm going to reply in this hour. And and if I don't, it means it can wait till the, till the next morning, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not important enough that I need to deal with it right away. And mm-hmm. it relieves this pressure on me to feel like I'm letting someone else down or I'm missing something. And mm-hmm. that lets me think more deeply. Yeah, and this is what I wanted. So this is why I asked you, I guess, that follow-up because what I really want people to hear is that you have a reason for doing your emails in the morning. So you've just clearly explained, you know what the reason is. You know that for the rest of the day, as you said, you want to focus on um, you know, deep work and, and be free from distractions. So you have this rationale because you said at the start, I hate doing email. So it's not like, oh, I'm doing the thing that I love, but you're doing that to then enjoy the rest of your day. That's and I exactly think the reason- right. Yeah, the reason I wanted people to kind of, I guess, really hone in on that is because it's intentional. And I think whatever you choose to do with your power hour in the morning, if it is intentional, it will be beneficial. I think the idea of just kind of waking up and thinking, oh, what should I do now? You know, how do I feel right now? And I know there's an argument for like, listen to how you feel. But I I really think having an intentional laid out when I wake up, I'm going to do this, whether it is when I wake up, I put on my shoes, I go for a run. Or when I wake up, I open my email and I do that. I think that intentionality is the powerful tool of the power hour. So whatever you choose. I think that's exactly right. I think you're yeah. exactly right. And and I think it doesn't, you know, different people have different circadian rhythms. They have different times of day when they're creative or when they're focused. And listening to that is great. The, the key is don't let those opportunities escape you because you failed to notice them and prepare for them wisdom wisdom (laughs) and i will share a really short quick version of my current power hour because i haven't done this for a long time obviously i ask everybody else but i never tell the listeners about my own so usually i am because i'm an endurance runner so usually i would run in the morning or if i'm not running that day maybe it's a rest day and i'm going to do some pilates or 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 not but sadly at the moment i can't run so i had this yeah at the start of the year i had this um chest and sinus problem and then I had to have it's a long story but essentially I'm on this like really frustrating slow road to recovery and so at the moment my power hour is walking and I'm still loving it and I think I'm there's obviously an element of frustration because I want to run I'm a runner but actually I'm really enjoying walking so I walk in the morning some mornings I take headphones listen to a podcast or an audiobook other times now I'm leaving the headphones at home and I'm kind of trying to practice because I'm not naturally like a very Zen mindful person. I'm always busy. I'm always doing. I'm always consuming and listening and asking and talking and thinking. So I'm trying at the moment as well sometimes to just go, you know what? Leave your headphones at home. Heaven forbid, leave your phone at home. 
you know where you're going. Just do the walk and just, you know, look at the seasons changing a bit. Look at the, you know, listen to the 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 dogs, the birds, all of that. So I've been trying to do that more recently. And does it improve the rest of your day? Like when you take that walk, do you find the rest of the day goes better? I Yeah, I don't know. I guess I should think more about that. But I think what I'm focused on right now is I just, I'm just enjoying that walk, yeah. you know? So regardless of what happens for the rest of the day, I suppose I've spent the first hour doing something enjoyable and relaxing. And I think that's, you know, we, t- we talk about conversations with other people, but there's also the conversations we have with ourselves. And they abide by the same science and the same rules as conversations with other people. And they're really important, right? During that hour when you're walking or probably when back when you were running, you had a chance to kind of like think about things and, and ask yourself questions. And what if, what if this or what if that? And it's really important to not only be able to have that conversation with ourselves, but to listen to ourselves. That when your body and your brain is telling you, you can't run, but you need to get outside. You need this time of contemplation, it's really important to listen to ourselves and follow follow that good advice. Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank I've you. I absolutely loved this conversation. Oh, me too. I, I knew that I would. And honestly, listeners, I encourage you, do yourselves and those that you love a favor and make sure you get a copy of Charles's book, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Tune in next week. Of course, I will be back with another episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.